0: podcast number four is it four? yeah of the failure the podcast which is actually less about failure and more about how to succeed
1: learning failures, yeah we yeah we haven't failed yet so we're moving <laughs> along. Number four. We failed at failure. Yeah yeah, yeah. So,
0: <laughs> so let me quickly introduce our guest and we'll introduce ourselves. Um, we're honored, privileged to have Jack Langworthy here today of a Sloan School grad of Covington Associates. He'll tell us a little more about his background, but he's going to talk about um, perhaps failure in the M&A context or in the health care space deal sale context or deal context.
2: And, and yeah, it, go ahead. Who are you? Yeah.
1: Uh, well, first, I always like start, i like to start thanking our host, Nutter. Ah, uh, thank you. Nutter Law Offices, great host. I'm Ziad Mukaber, CEO of Boston Harbor Angels. Today we're using headphones, so I can hear myself. <laughs> this is uh, this is new, and we also have an outline. So this is very exciting. This is uh, oh, yeah. we're uh, exciting about this number four, and then uh, our good friend Mark.
3: Hi, Ziad. Uh, thanks. Uh, it's Mark Thurman, and uh, pleased to pleased to have failed to fail and be on number four podcast.
0: Great, and I'm Dave Pausner, a partner here at Nutter in uh, IP law so Jack um, tell us about yourself just uh, who are you yeah who who are you quick overview and Um, then we'll take it from there because I think there's a lot of stuff to get into
2: um, I'm an M&A investment banker M&A is mergers and acquisitions so I buy and sell stuff Um, I do some capital raises but generally my primary focus is M&A my background I have a law degree. I practice law in uh, Colorado. I ran a couple oil and gas companies in Colorado. Um, then I went to business school at uh, at MIT. Uh, when I got out of MIT, I went to work for IBM, and I bought and sold companies for IBM as part of their corporate development staff. I got recruited to Bank of America Securities, which is a reasonably large investment bank. They had just bought they had just bought Montgomery Securities out of San Francisco. Um, and I was part of, part of that group. Uh, I was an M&A guy then and uh, uh, focused primarily on software. Um, when Bank of America shut down its, New York, uh, its Boston-based offices in 2001, I formed my own investment bank called Tech Cap Advisors. We specialized in private placements and mergers and acquisitions for software and other technology companies in the Northeast, primarily in Boston. Um, I then uh, went to Chicago and was the, uh, the head of healthcare information technology and healthcare information services for a boutique investment bank called Healthios. Um, and then from Healthios, I went to Covington Associates in 2010. Uh, I was the managing director and, and head of mergers and acquisitions for healthcare information technology and healthcare information services company. I sort of left um, left uh, Covington in 2015. I still work uh, with them on deals, but uh, 2014 we had 114 inches of snow in Boston, and I said, geez, really? Enough's enough. Uh, I'm going to move to someplace warmer." I like cities. I like live music. I like theater. Um, you know, I. My first choice would have been Chicago, but I would have loved to have Chicago in uh, Texas. And so I ended up moving to Austin. And so I work on uh, M&A deals here, and I see a lot of live music. I do yoga four or five times a week, and um, and that's about it.
1: Oh, great. This is very exciting. You seem to have a great career. So any failures in it? We're a failure podcast. Now we have the full story. And so my first question or first topic I I'm burning to ask is, how were things in 2008? So that, that's a time period where people struggled, failed, and it wasn't because of their own decision-making. It's just the overall market uh, was bad. So to, um, what, what happened to you during that period?
2: You know, it's, it's an interesting question because there are always macroeconomic issues or macro issues that can impact investment banking. 2008 uh, a good one because it was uh, It was it was basically the recession People call it a mini depression They can call it a recession But it was sig- pretty significant Another one would be 2011 um, 2001 would be another period Where uh, there was a downturn in the marketplace What ends up happening is things slow down uh, you, you just don't get as many deals done Because people hate to make decisions In periods of uncertainty So, you know, if if you're looking to sell your company in 2008, you, you had a very difficult time because no one really either had money or wanted to spend money and nobody really had a focus as to what the future was going to hold. So they didn't want to buy something uh, and have it turned out to be overpriced, particularly when you saw prices. So, so,
1: things, so things slowed down. Nothing shut down, right? I mean, did you experience anything shutting down because of the economic situation?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Investment bankers, if you can believe it, as 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 necessary as we are to the overall U.S. economy, there were a number of us that uh, no longer had jobs. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, things things slowed down in investment banking, but you just got rid of, of overhead. You, you lost more bankers and, um, uh, you know, that people went on and, and did other things. But, so,
3: so, Jack, it's, it's Mark. Yeah. So. As you, yep. I, as you, I think correctly identified that there are macro issues. Are you able able now to do some pattern detection around what those macro issues are, aside from the obvious recessions that might lead a company to shut down and require uh, your services?
2: Yeah, in a sense, markets. You know, when I say macro issues, I probably should have said exogenous variables, and those are variables that you really don't have control over. So 2011 isn't, uh, or 2001 is a good exogenous variable um, uh, because nobody knew about the World Trade Center or you know ISIS or or, uh, or anything else. Um, but as it relates to you know things that cause companies to you know to fail, and my background had been more technology. Um, yeah, it's it's almost as simple as. You know, if you're a software company and you've been at it for five or six years, and software is a pretty, you know, not capital intensive business, if you've been at it five or six years and you're doing three, four million dollars in revenues and, you know, sort of cash flow break even, there's something fundamentally wrong. I mean, you are not solving a problem people care enough about to pay you.
3: So, if I could follow up, so you might say uh, not enough sales growth within a a certain uh, milestone period. Is one of the uh, warning signs.
2: I think that's right. I mean, I, I, I run into companies occasionally, and and I, I you know just sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. It's the they have this if we build it, they will come theory. Um, so they have you know field of dreams concept that they've got a solution that it's going to you know just knock it out of the the park, but it really doesn't. Um, and they haven't done a good good point of. You know, answering the first question, I tend to ask people to ask me, explain your, what your company does that anybody – what problem do you solve that anybody cares enough about to pay you? And then the second part of that is, do they pay you enough that you could make money? And there are a lot of people that fail to focus on the, the size of the, either the solution. Fundamentally, you know, intellectual properties, you know, not, not great. It's, uh, it doesn't really work that well. It's pretty kludgy. But most of the time, they they fail on the fact that there really isn't a market for their for their point solution or their product. Uh, and sometimes it goes into you know they just get the, the wrong management. I mean, they a lot of a lot of the startups will have you know be led by tech guys to begin with, and then you know those those men and women are great up to a certain point, but they have to be sort of moved out into another realm because you know it takes there's a different skill set required to take a company. To get to the point of having a product in the marketplace and doing 5 million of sales and doing 10 million of sales so, and doing 20 million of sales.
0: Can we step back for one second? Yeah. Um, maybe these other two guys are, have uh, picked up on this, but I haven't. Um, and
1: just for the record, we always step back with, yeah. with David. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> so, try to get a context. That, go ahead.
0: Okay. So, can you give us a sense? of number one what does an MA uh you're not an mna lawyer so much you are a lawyer but what does an mna uh banker or, or an investment banker do how do clients i guess they're called customers clients um, get a hold of you what are they trying to do give us sort of a three minute overview and then these other questions might begin to make um give them some context
2: sure um so let's, let's look at just what, what's an M&A attorney, mergers and acquisition, acquisition attorney, um, not attorney, uh, an investment banker. Um, I sell stuff, uh, and uh, sometimes I'll help companies buy stuff. Um, so some of my deals with public companies have been to buy other companies, uh, but primarily I'm on the sell side. So And most of them are private companies, uh, particularly these days. Um, you know, I've I worked for a large investment bank and, and worked a lot with public companies back back in the day, but uh, now I'm working more with private companies. And they're looking for an exit strategy. They may, they may have investors that are looking to exit, and those are usually private equity guys that want it to have, have it in their portfolio company. And ultimately, you know, they either want to go public with that. That's That's a rare, that's a rare outcome. Uh, but you know the, the most likely outcome, other than bankruptcy and failure, is is frankly a sale to someone else. And they so they they would hire us to sell that uh, sell that technology or sell that company. Uh, so, were these companies all, that are yeah.
0: are these companies that are failing, or are these companies that are growing, or at least stable and well
2: established? Primarily, it's an interesting question because we're small. You know, I worked for small boutiques. I've worked for large companies. So, on the large investment banks, we never had private equity firms that would come and say, "Jesus, sell this floundering piece of crap." Uh, they would give us the better deals. The small companies, the small, uh, you know, uh, investment banks, those are the ones that uh, the losers get foisted on. Um, you know, because no, no large company, Goldman Sachs or Morgan Stanley or Merrill or you name your f- favorite large investment bank, wants to spend a lot of time uh, selling to a company whose revenues are either flat or going the wrong direction.
0: Okay. Smaller,
2: so smaller investment banks, you know, we'll do it if we think we can get it done.
0: Okay, so you're generally working with companies that are not in fire sale mode, not in the decline, not sort of what some people might say in the private equity mode which is trying to sell themselves out and be rolled up with somebody else but rather a growing company are these startups are they well-established uh mid-cap companies where do they fit in in general
2: um we tend to look at at smaller companies when i talk about smaller companies and we've done larger deals but look at revenues from uh 10 to 50 million uh, cash flow uh, break even or better, uh, particularly on the low tech companies, uh, particularly services companies. Those ought to be pretty profitable from the get go. Uh, so you may look at anywhere from seven to 15 of EBITDA, uh, and those are are companies that they're looking for a liquidity event. Uh, they may not, if, you know, it could be in a portfolio of a setting with the venture capital firm or the private equity firm that it's time for them to sell that to someone. And who's the we? Need, who's the yeah, we? Is it,
0: is it you, your your Covington Associates spot in the marketplace, or investment
2: bankers as a whole? Uh, you know, it'll, they'll run the continuum in terms of, uh, let me see if I have the question correct. Um well, why don't you re-ask the question, because I'm not yeah. sure exactly I'm just
0: trying to figure out whether the – you said that we generally look for companies in the – I think you said – I'm not sure I heard it – 15 to X million in revenue with an EBITDA of, of whatever. Um, and I was, you said we, and I'm trying to figure out is we, you, Jack, you and your tapeworms, um, from the old joke, um, whether it's um, Covington or whether it's investment bankers as a whole.
2: No, you know, you you always try to ratchet up. Um, You know, you want better clients and you want easier deals. It's it's a weird sort of, it's a weird concept because I've been with a large investment bank uh, and I've been with small investment banks, including my own. And people say, well, what's the difference between the large and the small investment bank? And I said, here's how it works. Small investment banks, I do deals that are harder to get done. Uh, They require more work and I get less money. And they said, "Well, Jesus, that sounds like a hell of a concept." And I said, "Yeah, it is." So you know, the the larger firms, the Goldman Sachs, the Morgans, you know, your bulge bracket firms, will always get the sweet deals. They get they just get better deals uh, because they they have better relationships with the private equity firms. And if you're going to go, if you if you think you're a small firm or you're, you're a bulge bracket firm, you're you know, or uh, and, and a large cap. Uh, uh, software company, you think you're going to get a better you know better representation for, from Goldman Sachs or Merrill. and you might. So you know the rest of it sort of scales down. When I was at Bank of America Securities, you know I'd have people saying, you know i've'm you know I'm dealing with another bank and they've offered me a better price than you are and you know why don't, you know would you meet their price? And I said, no, you, this is my minimum. this is what I'll do it for. and I said if if you think that investment bankers are fungible, and that, by that, I mean that everybody's equal. Then you ought to always go to the lowest price. It's the same as attorneys or doctors or any other service provider. Um, you know, you get what you pay for. So you don't like what you like me, but you want me to do it for a cheaper price. I'm not Mother Teresa. I'm oh, not yeah, going to yeah, do that. Yeah.
1: So, so here's here's my question because I've seen we're in the startup. My business is in in funding startups, and and the exit is basically the most exciting time, or we all wait for the exit. And we're exciting when an investment bank comes in. So tell us stories where you worked on a deal and things were great. You were negotiating the deal, it worked great, and then the deal did not happen. Because this is probably the most stressful time where everything's lining up and something happened that made it fail uh, or it didn't close, a conflict, personality conflicts. Um, because those are all good stories for us to, to learn from when we review startups and look at the founders and see if they can actually close and exit.
2: Um, okay, that's, that's fair. So I've probably done 60 deals uh, and I've been the lead primarily on all of them. And I've done it from a, a gamut of, of my own firm, uh, what I'm doing now with Covington Associates with Bank of America Securities And I also, you know, Healthios, as well as IBM. And I also worked in, IBM had a uh, venture capital arm called Fireworks Partners for a a brief period of time, and I worked in that group. Um, So when I looked at, you know, thought about deals that didn't get done, and and God Almighty, I I would be the first never to admit that I've ever been a failure at anything. But let's assume, arguendo, that uh, that my life hasn't been a complete
1: success. (laughs) Thank you. For, yeah. for, so, for being honest, yeah.
2: When I look at uh, the the reasons that deals don't primarily get done, for almost in, entirely it is they fail to hit their numbers. Um, I tell my clients, look, you let me do what I want to what what I'm going to do, and that's sell your company. You focus on running this business. Bring me a few good upside surprises. I don't want you to crush your numbers because then that calls into question the volatility of your revenue. It calls into question your, the, the volatility of your projections and your earnings. That actually create, can create more problems. But you know, have a few upside surprises for me as we're going toward close. Don't micromanage me. I don't need your micromanagement. I need you to tell me good news and bad news. And invariably, when I looked at the deals that didn't get done, almost all of them were um, failure to hit their numbers
1: and the founders so do you find that the founders sometimes have a hard time letting go and selling their business and and or you vet them you don't even take the deals where you feel that the founders are too attached to their business
2: it's it's a very good question so when i when i do um when i do due diligence on a company i want to know what their value expectations why are they selling and then i want to know what their value expectations are uh and then i want to know what their you know what their plans are so it's easy if they're in their 50s and 60s to think that they're ready to let go if they're in their 20s and 30s and have been serial entrepreneurs it's also you know reasonable to expect that they're willing to let go because this is just another in a series of deals that they're going to get done it's when this is their only baby and and you can tell that this is all they've done all their life and you know they built something but they're you know 45 years old I wonder if they're going to be able to let go. Uh, unless I know that you know, they probably they'll probably get thirty, forty million dollars as to their piece. Um, so the the idea of founders letting go—I'll give you a, a horror story uh, because how I make money is through success. Um, uh, I'll we'll charge a commission on uh, a success fee on the deal getting done. That's primarily how we make money. We're no different than a real estate agent in a sense. Um, you know, we'll charge a retainer, but that's not how I, I make money either. The retainer just ensures that my client head is in the game. Because if you work for free, I'll have Mother Teresa, people never listen to you, and, and they won't do the work you need them to do because you're working, you know, they'll look at you and say, how smart are you? You're working for nothing. Um, so I had a client, and this was it was interesting technology. It was developed by the uh, uh, one of the professors at MIT, um, and it was based on robotics. And he had his own little firm. His some of his students went and uh, did iRobot, uh, which which was military uh, technology that they turned into a vacuum cleaner. They used to throw that thing into into foxholes, and and it would scour around and look for bombs and stuff. But they turned it into a vacuum cleaner, which I think was a, probably a greater good. But the the MIT professor. We found a buyer for him, uh, SAIC, and I can say it now because it's, it's really quite an old deal. And they, um, you know, he hired us, and he said, you know, we want $25 million. And I said, okay. Uh, and I got him twenty seven. And so he came back, and, uh, you know, SAIC had gotten corporate approval, and we were about to close the deal. And we're talking about closing, and I get a call from the guy, and he said, you know, Jack, I, I, I really want twenty seven. And I said, you know, the twenty-seven, based on what your ownership in the company is, it, it, the difference between twenty-seven and twenty-five, it's it's a one million dollar difference. You're going to get eighteen versus seventeen. You know what's going on? Because that that million dollars isn't going to make a difference. He said, "Well, my neighbor thinks I should get a little more." I said, "Really?" He said, "Yeah, my neighbor thinks I ought to get twenty seven. He said, "Can you get me, you know, a couple more million?" I said, "Look." I don't think so. I will try, uh, because, because you've asked me to, and I'm your, you know, I'm your agent in a sense. But they've already gotten corporate approval, and to go back and just say, we want another couple million, I'm not sure that works. So sure enough, we went back, and they didn't want to give any more. We uh, ended up uh, developing a sort of a commercial relationship with them. And there was good news, because several years later, he ended up selling the, the robotics platform to Google, uh, Google has subsequently turned around and decided not to go into that business, and my ex-client, I think, may have bought back those, those assets from Google. But to your point, yeah, you get people that don't want to let go. I mean, he was going from being the president of his own company to being some mid-level flunky at SAIC.
1: And with so a, when with a went, nice
2: bank account.
1: So when he went he to wouldn't Google... money. So he did the better job... He, he had the better outcome going to Google...
2: Yeah, after a number of years, but not immediately. I mean, you know, you're rolling the dice here. Um, You know, it turned out Google wanted to, you know, wanted to get into the home delivery business. And, you know, they thought maybe, you know, it's like Amazon. You know, maybe this was before the drones. Maybe, you know, maybe it'll get carted by, you know, some legged robot. Um, You know, it's not that the technology was bad. It was great technology.
3: So, so Jack, just to kind of... Just to jump in, not on that specific yep. um, case, but so, uh, you know, in, in terms of, you know, when you look at some of these deals that don't go through, so you, you said, you know, in, in one case, you've got a founder that doesn't want to let go or has sort of uh, uh, buyer's remorse at the last second, which was the last one that you, that you just discussed.
2: Yep.
3: Uh, the, other, the other case you've discussed is the notion of uh, not having enough revenue, which again, limits the salability of the company. What are some other markers? What are some other markers that you can think of to um, kind of discuss and review that make deals go south?
2: Yeah, and on the revenue side, it's not enough revenues. It's missing your revenue targets. Okay. So this was a small company that I was dealing with that was doing two hundred and fifty thousand a month. So uh, we found a buyer for them. And the buyer was pretty happy with them, and then we were getting close to, we were moving towards close, and the CEO comes in and, you know, he said, geez, Jack, our our numbers were a little light a month ago. And I said, well, what do you mean a little light? And he said, 25000 I said, 25000 He said, yeah. And I said, holy crap. Why didn't you you tell me before? And he said, well, I I don't think it's that big a deal. And I said, it's a big deal. He said, "Well, what do you think the buyer's going to do?" I said, "The buyer will do one of three things. They're going to fold up tent and say, "No, we aren't interested." They're going to readjust the price that they offer you. Or what I think will happen is they'll if they're interested, they'll say, "Well, let's hold on a minute and see what next month comes because if you're saying you missed those numbers, unless they went into vapor, they should show up next next month as you should really crush your numbers next month." And he said, "I, you know, let's see what they do." And sure enough, um, the buyer, you know, wanted to wait, and the the revenues never did come back, and they they drifted into uh, bankruptcy.
0: Do you tend to know why that happens, though? I mean, where's the failure, the mini failure there? Clearly, the deal fell through, but why did they miss the numbers? What, where was the yeah. higher level failure?
2: Uh, the higher level failure is a management issue. I mean, it's it's not fully understanding and appreciating where your customer sets are at. Um, you know, uh, the it. 250 25 versus 250 it's it's not a big deal in in the scheme of numbers generally but in order of magnitude it is i mean you're off an order of magnitude in revenues um so you don't have a handle on it so there's you know there that leads me to you know another reason why deals don't get done and i'll give you a positive because this is a deal that did get done uh and this was a sale of um, uh, software technology to uh J.D. Edwards, which has subsequently bought, got bought, so I can talk about this deal too, uh, so I, we, I had a client that was going to go public, they were a they had some great technology um, they were going to go public, and they too missed their numbers and J, uh, Goldman Sachs was going to take them public Goldman said, we can only take you public at $450 million. they said, no, that's, that's much too light, they waited a couple more months then they turned to us and said, can you find a buyer for us and I said, "Yeah, I think I can because I, I know who you are and I like your product." And we found a buyer with JD Edwards. Well, JD Edwards, um, you know, by that time these guys were willing to take less than, you know, they were willing to take fifty million dollars. So I got JD Edwards to get uh, to to make a bid for eighty. And and the uh, JD Edwards corporate biz dev guy said, "Jack, I got one problem." I said, "What's that?" And he said, "We hate the management." <laughs> I said, what's to hate? <laughs> he said, we love their development team in Toronto. We think oh, that's really why we're buying the asset, but we hate the two the two senior execs. And I and he said, can you solve that problem for us? I said, yeah. I said, here's how I think we can do that. And I said, offer these guys a uh, a one-year consulting contract and make it clear to them they'll get paid if they show up or not, and they may even get a bonus if they don't show up. Because But you have to throw them an emotional bone that, you know, you – you 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 honor all the work they've done and, and how much they've done to create this this great company, but on a going forward basis, they may not be as necessary to your on, on what your strategy is as as they think they are. That's a, that underscores another issue I, I at times have with the smaller companies, is you know a lot of times the, they, they you know a lot of times they do want the management team. Several times they don't. Uh, when I bought companies for IBM, we tended to want the management team. We didn't want them necessarily to leave. But do we need the HR person? Do we need the marketing people? Not really. We needed the developers, and we may need the um, uh, we may need some of the sales and marketing if they don't have a, if they have different channels than we have.
0: Okay, so here's a different question. The yeah. when we see startups, we tend to gauge our investment <coughs> on. They're the exit, of course, the expected exit, and invariably that's, and invariably often stated as a multiple of revenues. You're actually, so we're guessing in, you know, three to five years, maybe seven years out, that there is a multiplier that this industry is following. If, for example, the if a company presents to us a startup, they will say, well, here's some comps, here's some comparable sales that occurred recently, and they tended to be 5x revenue, 10x revenue, whatever, they're different numbers. You've, you've actually seen these deals happen. To what extent do those numbers, those sort of published or known numbers, how accurate are they? To what extent do they really drive the deal? Or is it just sort of post-facto, this is where they came out?
2: Yeah, it's like a back-solver function. Um, so um, you know, let me answer in two different ways because um, I was a strategic buyer when I worked at IBM. Uh, so we bought companies, and people. The reason people go to strategic buyers like IBM and Microsoft and EMC and Dell and whoever else you want to name is that we'll pay more money. It, it really is as simple as that. Um, we will pay more money, and why do we pay more money? Uh, part of it is we got a ton of money, but the but the main thing is is that we can do more with that asset than it can do on a standalone basis. So we bought assets at IBM when I was there that were doing fifty million of revenues. And had three million of EBITDA or five million of EBITDA, and we paid a multiple that was, you know, it was it was higher than we knew than we thought other people in the market would pay. But we turned a company that was doing fifty million in revenues, put its product through our distribution channel, and that company turned into a four hundred million dollar company. Well, nobody else is going to be able to do that. It just isn't going to happen. So that's why strategic buyers will always pay more because you'll pay what it's worth for you.
0: But to what extent? To those? To what extent? Do the sort of published industry or known industry standards for the – to what extent do the revenues drive the price, and how, how uh, consistent is that uh, multiplier, the price of sale?
2: I think it's very inconsistent, and maybe because it's a, I'm a quant guy and went to MIT. Um, but revenues, are, revenues are nonsense. I mean, revenues don't drive anything. I mean, what drives stuff is ultimately cash flow. It's got to be translatable into cash flow. Uh, revenues are, you know, what happened if it, you know, it cost me a, a buck and a quarter to generate a dollar worth of revenues? You know, why would I buy something? Why would I ever buy that? I okay. could save a quarter by not doing it.
0: So if it's, re- if it's not revenues, is it EBITDA or is it some yeah. other? Okay. Almost, and-
2: all, almost always EBITDA because it's you can strip out EBITDA and you, t- you can take out the effects of, uh, of how they set up their capital structure. So it's earning before interest, tax, depreciation, and amortization.
0: And to what extent, to, to the extent there's a multiplier there, are they fairly consistent? For example, did, to the extent you can talk about IBM or to the extent you can guess about HP or anyone else, to what extent were they internally looking at EBITDA and saying, okay, this is where it fits on our chart. We normally pay X times EBITDA, and th- therefore we're willing to offer Y to the um, seller.
2: No, let me tell you, let me let me explain how we would do it at IBM because I've um – I think they still use a model that I helped create when I was there. Uh, it's not that I'm that smart. I was, you know, I was the only one that could find con into doing this. But what we took a look at is we would we would look at the entity and, and, and look at it on a standalone basis and said, what do we think we, this company is going to do if it continues to motor on? And almost always you have to realize that IBM wasn't buying stuff that they hadn't been working with. You know, your best bet to get bought by IBM is already be working with IBM and showing some value to some exec at IBM because they're going to ultimately have to sign up to, to own you, as it were. I was in corporate. We would buy you, but they would own you and be responsible for your results. So we'd do evaluation on standalone basis of a target. We would then get the business unit owner to sign up for what they would do with this unit if they bought it. And we would do a pro forma on a standalone basis, even though we had consolidated financials, we would track that. And so they would say, well, on a standalone basis, this is worth X. It's worth 5X to us because of the way we're going to run it and manage it. Therefore, we can afford to bid 2X.
0: And that's a revenue basis or an EBITDA basis or what?
2: Almost always EBITDA. The revenue is interesting because that's what all early stage companies, and and, and because my background had been technology, I'm pretty used to uh, of technolo- uh, revenues. But ultimately, you know, things are worth multiples of cash. I mean, the best example I can give is just over time. You to look at Microsoft. Microsoft's almost priced like a, uh, you know, almost like a utility. It, it it only runs at like what five or six times EBITDA now, and that still turns out to be. Th- Two and a half, three and a half, uh, two and a half to three times revenues, because their EBITDAs margins are so great. They've got so much money. That's why they do stock buybacks. They can't they they they, they gin cash like nobody nobody else. They, they can't they, they can do uh, anything with the they money. They
3: pay dividends like a utility as well.
2: Yeah, exactly. But early stage companies, you know, particularly pre you know pre revenue, who, who knows? But before they get commercialized uh, or before they get profitable. Everybody thinks about revenue multiples, but at the end of the day, everything's worth cash. I mean, people don't get confused when they try to value Safeway or some retail shop or a liquor store. I mean, there's no value And geez, I got the best looking bottles of wine. I don't, I don't get any value for that. People shouldn't be confused as to any other entity ultimately be, being worth some multiple of cash.
1: So so when when does a startup actually or a founder wake up and say, I need to call an investment bank is there uh, an inflection point is there well, a I'm time hoping, uh, yeah just, i'm
2: hoping today <laughs> 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 got to call jack No. because let me
1: just follow up with a quick uh, because oftentimes we experience investment bankers saying you're not ready and there's always an excuse you're not ready you're you're and the ones that are ready are in good shape are already uh-huh. sold so you, so the ones that are doing great are already gone and the ones that are not ready. So uh, when, when is that moment where it's, it's, uh, it's a good time for someone to call you?
2: You know, um, because of the, the way the market is now, uh, there's so much money in the marketplace that you know, things are being, are being paid a lot of money. And, and there used to be a risk-reward paradigm. So smaller companies that represented more risk would potentially uh, have more upside but what you see now is that there's so much money in the marketplace that relatively stable companies um, that shouldn't engender the type of multiples they do are getting premiums historically reserved for riskier higher startup companies um, so is there a magic time no because it's all, all depends on what the company what does the company want to do
1: uh, and then the board so in our case, when there's investment dollars in, so you have the founder, but you also have the board, they all have to sit down and say, okay, we're ready. And let's start finding an investment banker to help us execute.
2: Yeah, you, you, know, I'm, and, and as, you know, I do smaller deals now. So the, the deals I like to do, the, the more EBITDA, the better. Um, so you got a million dollar EBITDA company that does five million in revenues. It's gonna be tough to find a buyer. Uh, if it's a technology company, I've got a little, more, a, a little more traction, but it's tough to find companies that are going to find a buyer for that. You're not going to find a strategic. I mean, you know, the, the companies that size normally don't have a working relationship with Microsoft or, you know, a strategic buyer. Uh, they may have an interesting gimcrack point solution technology, but they tend not to be attractive on a number of different, a number of different levels. The reason the investment bankers will come to sometimes tell you that you're not ready is they're really making an assessment because you have to realize that they all, we're all trying to just make money, and we understand the sales commission. It's just a harder deal to sell a small company than it is one that does three to five million dollars in, in EBITDA.
1: And then so, when when startups come and say, well, Google is going to buy me, or or Microsoft is going to buy me, what is? Just to give them an idea, what is the likelihood, in your opinion, if you can give a percentage or a probability, that a company is going to be bought by Google? One
2: um, percent? Half a percent?
1: Half a percent.
2: It, it'll be, it would be actually different if it was a larger company. I mean, you, know, you have to realize that it takes almost as much trouble to buy a small company as it does a large one uh, because someone has to own it. And even though you're talking about small dollars, you know small dollars you're not going to get a business unit exact within google to want to buy this you know buy this you know net i mean what what for i mean you know you're a, you're a huge company and you know the, the exception i was telling you about this robotics company i don't think it had done that much in in uh in revenues even by the time they got bought by google but what they had in which the googles and Microsofts and others can be interested in is really ip uh, and its technology and that IP issue is yet another reason for failure. It's it's when I get clients that fail to have someone like David Pousner uh, haven't done an IP search or protected their IP.
0: <laughs> kind of you. No, Thank you.
2: No, those deals can get – you know, when I was at IBM, there were a couple deals we didn't do, and it was exactly because of that issue. Because we weren't sure who we were going to technology. Uh, One was an Australian company, one was an Israeli-based company that had technology that had come from uh, Israeli uh, military, which was always top-notch technology. You just have a hell of a time figuring out who owns it. Uh, And at IBM, we were deep pockets. So, you know, the fact that someone hadn't gotten sued, we didn't care because we would get sued. We're deep pockets. Uh, So intellectual property on technology companies and failure to protect intellectual property from the get-go and I'm not talking about three years into it, but you know all these consulting deals, or who developed this technology, and you know I got you know I got confidentiality rights, but you didn't get you didn't get an assignment of intellectual property rights. There are a lot of ways that IP can go south on you, so that can be yet another reason deals don't get done.
3: So Jack, it's Mark. I'm, I'm just going to kind of do a slight recap, sort of in the middle, mm-hmm. just to make sure that I'm getting it right, and maybe the audience is uh, playing along at home. There are several reasons that it, you've indicated that deals fail um, in no particular order. One is the failure to do proper market research and not be aware of uh, market conditions. You mentioned uh, you know, a terrorist event or something like that. Emotional attachment, um, which is sort of the greed example I think you gave. Team lost focus, didn't achieve revenue targets. Um, in unrealistic, unrealistic expectations. So those are the ones, I mean, I've just been kind of jotting down uh, over here. Uh, are there other uh, points where something might fail that you kind of look at and go, oh, boy, this isn't going to work out?
2: Yeah, I would probably, and I do force rank stuff. So I think the primary reason, you, you know, you have to realize I 10 deals that, a uh, venture capital in to sign up for seven of them will fail, two of them will be incomplete successes and one will actually be a home run and that one and, and the other two sort of have to cover the, cover the weight for all of the others and they never invest in deals they don't think are going to be a home run so that's always sort of a sobering thought to, to bring on into, the, into the game. As to reasons deals don't get done the number one reason is always uh, missing revenue and, and profitability targets period. That's almost always it. A subset of that, and I don't get to this point, Mark, actually, is when you have a product that, that literally nobody wants to buy, um, and that's that's back to the question of, you know, what problem do you solve that anybody cares enough about to pay you? If they haven't got that product, I might tend I'm unlikely to take that assignment. Uh, I can do my own thought thinking and do my own research, and I get people that want me to sell, you know, some piece of crap that they've got that has done nothing has been floundering and they and i can't I, I look at it and say i can't buy it the other then becomes a second if revenues are the first i think uh bid ask spread can be um could could probably be close to second that's why i always want in due diligence i always like to know what is it you what you know what are you going to be happy with because if they want a hundred million dollars and i think the market is 30 i'm gonna have a hard time taking it i had a boss one time that said jack tell them whatever they want Tell them if they think it's a hundred and you think it's thirty. You're a smart guy. You're probably right. But if you do a good job, we do a good job marketing this, and they come back and they see it's only thirty. You know, they may take the thirty. But if you tell them it's thirty and they want a hundred, or if they wanted the hundred and I told them it was thirty, so take the deal. If if they think it's a hundred and all we came back was with thirty, you'll find that they may accept the thirty million.
3: No, this 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 all makes sense. So, part of the way you avoid failure is to qualify your deals properly. Is that a fair? Uh, that's right. Okay.
2: It, it's a due diligence issue. Um, you know th- that's right. Um, you know I, when I practiced law, I didn't really care if my clients were guilty or innocent because it wasn't really my you know that wasn't my role. Um,
0: can you go? Can you go back to the uh, partially to the IP, but also the um, sort of sort of the companies that are trying to fill in. I think you were getting at a startup that's trying to fill in a gap in the product line of a strategic. Maybe you weren't going there, but could you? I guess the question is a strategy what we often hear um, by startups is, well, IBM, uh, that doesn't come up that often, but, for example, IBM doesn't have an X, but they ought to have an X, so I'm building an X. Or... Facebook doesn't have a why, so I'm targeting my company to be why, so I'm sure I'll be picked up by Facebook, and if not by them, by a competitor. How often do you see that, or have you seen that, and how often does that fail or succeed?
2: Um, I think it, it. I like I like that strategy, because what you're describing is a difference between a point solution and a suite of solutions. So everybody wants to pay lip service to the concept that they've got a suite of solutions, that they've got a, a, a front-to-back solution, uh, front to back solution in in healthcare a lot of the activity recently has been on the front end on revenue cycle management and technology associated with extracting as much money as you can from the patient at the point of care i think that's relatively important so these point solutions actually are okay um and, and i think if you've literally identified it and and you've got intellectual property that you can develop that's that's really pretty strong uh you know not just open source kind of stuff uh, that you have rights to, that can be pretty valuable.
1: And so, so the the start. So when we look at but, startups, wait,
2: wait, wait, let me let me let me oh, change the thought.
0: Cool. Yeah. Um, go. The
2: problem I've had with the people that have point solutions is that they they get too blustery. They 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 say, well, we have something Microsoft doesn't have, and we're going to be able to beat Microsoft in, at its own game. No, because if, if it's if it's a big enough need. Microsoft can develop they won't necessarily steal it from you but they, if they understand that there's a there's there is a gap in their product suite uh, they'll develop it on their own and you will be kicked to the curb and you will just mm. be you know used to be right
1: right right that's there. interesting yeah. fascinating because when we look at startups all we're thinking about how to avoid failure and and from from everything I'm hearing if the founder can deliver on his promises or her promises, then we're happy as investors. You're happy as an investment banker. The acquirer is happy because the the numbers are being met. So a dedicated, disciplined founder is a good founder to invest in.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, you know more about it than I do. What I what I see is characteristics of uh, venture capital primarily, and and PE less so because they tend to invest in later stage companies. But the venture capitalists want a, a, a management team and they want to look – they want to know that there's a, a big enough market for the product. Um, and that's probably the right, the right function. Um, you know, later on, they, they ought to worry about the IP, particularly if it's a technology or software company. But at least going into the, into the mix, you, you want a, someone that's got – you know, you want a management team that's done it before, that are serial entrepreneurs, that have skin in the game, their own money. They aren't just coming to you as the first round. They've got friends and family already in. Um, and that they're tackling a big enough, attractive market. You know, the big thing right now, and, and David can talk to us probably better than I can talk about it, is artificial intelligence. I mean, artificial intelligence is, you know, is the is continues to be a hot button, and, and the people people want it because it'll help make better decisions.
0: But to be clear, here um, just a sec to clarify, yeah. though, on, on Ziad's um, on your response to Ziad. He was It's the founding team, and the embedding on management is important for the investor. By the time you're involved as the investment banker, the founding team is likely to be, if not thrown away, simply thrown into sort of a middle manager role. So in your job as an investment banker, what matters are revenues, EBITDA, and everything else, founding team, less important. From Ziad's perspective, founding team is critical because he wants to make sure it gets far enough that you can then do your thing.
2: It's a good question. I didn't mean to be as cavalier as I may have sounded in terms of throwing away. It's that the skill set that when you, when you're on a startup and when your main function, particularly in technology is to come up with a technology solution or develop a software solution is different that once you go into the marketplace, you know, there are other people whose, whose responsibilities, you know, will help bluntly commercialize the technology that the, Uh, Early team develops. So that's why startups don't need a CFO. I mean, you need an accountant, and that's about it. Um, But, uh, you know, I think I I didn't really mean to be, you know, cavalier or or say, no, no, No. No, no, that's fine. No, 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 we we got it. We're just
1: trying to find predictive uh, uh, indexes or anything we can try to uh, put our finger on with startups that would later on help, or the opposite. So, uh, so, Mark, do you so want to
0: bring us to a close here? Yeah, think, yeah, I just want middle. to add to
1: my, my
3: prior list. It sounds like you don't want to you don't want to see a slide, the last slide on the PowerPoint deck say we're going to sell our company to Cisco or Google or SAP or one of those guys because you, you think that's a predictor in a sense of unrealistic expectations.
2: Or is that directed to me? Yeah, yeah. back to you. <clears throat> oh yeah, you bet. I, I, I do see those. As a matter of fact, here's so-and-so wants to buy us. You want to you get bought by those companies? Um, have a relationship with them.
1: Early on uh, and so... Uh, early,
2: early on and on yeah. a continuing basis. A because continue, yeah. from the IBM days, we would turn to the operating unit execs and you're working with these people. Do you want them? Will you sign up for the sales sales and marketing plan that you currently said you would? Uh, as opposed to, I think one of the few examples is when, when IBM bought Lotus. That got pushed on to t- uh, John Thompson, the head of uh, software at the time, by Lou Gersner, who said, uh, John, good news, we're buying Lotus. And he said, I don't want Lotus. And Gerstner said, John, good news, we're buying Lotus.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, and just so you know, Mark, we're, we're very happy to, um, when you guys get involved Oh, to Jack. Yeah. Jack, when yeah. you when we yeah. you got involved as investors, we were very excited because that means the exit is in sight. So,
0: so any last thoughts before we bring this to a close, Jack? Uh
2: no, not not really. I mean, it's it's a it's a process. I mean, you know the. I always like if 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 you're you know if you've got a portfolio company, you know buyers like to actually see. Good attorneys. They would like to see good accountants. They like to see investment bankers because they know that all of those people, particularly the investment bankers, probably done uh, some level of due diligence and thinks that this deal can get done. Uh, because, as I say, we get paid on success. We don't get you know. We have some nominal retainer, but you know, there's a there's a you know good. Uh, it, it can send it can send a, the right signal to the marketplace. And plus, we tend to be pretty – we move pretty straightforward and quickly. I don't spend a lot of time agonizing with someone that's wringing their hands or, you know, can't meet a deadline. You know, they just aren't interested. You know, a pass is also a bid.
3: So misery loves company is what you're saying, or guilt by association.
2: Well, no, it's not even that. It's just that, you know – it's a process, and I expect most of the time people are. You know, if I go out to a hundred different potential buyers, I expect ninety some odd to say no, and I, I hope to get bids from five, five to ten, five to seven of them. Sure, it's a sales uh, but,
1: process. I mean, it's like it's like selling anything: selling a house, selling a company. You're you're out there selling, and you find the right fit. I think I heard Jack
0: pouring a bourbon. <laughs> no,
1: no,
2: I don't. I don't drink. Okay. No offense. I start drinking, but I don't drink.
0: <laughs> well, this has
1: been this has been a very serious podcast. I, I, I yes. enjoyed it. We laughed yes. less than our previous ones, but because the topic is very is really, uh, um, it's really interesting for us because that's what we're we're hoping for exits, and investment bankers sometimes bring them to us. So, Jack, we want to thank you very much for this yeah. fascinating talk, and uh, you didn't really. Uh, show us a lot of failures, but uh, we've learned tremendously from what you're doing. How to avoid them. And, yeah, and no, how to avoid them, exactly. Right. That's excellent,
0: Jack. Much appreciated. Have a good okay, night. Guys. Thanks. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Nice. Bye.
2: Good to meet you all. Take care of yourselves and have some fun.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Jack. Bye-bye.
2: See you.